And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. One of the great questions that has been asked through the ages is who killed Jesus? Now these verses at the end of the 13th chapter here, they kind of bring this issue to the forefront. Who was it that killed Jesus? Now from his birth, Jesus was the target for murderers. In fact, it seems like almost everybody wanted him dead. He called for, for the very best of people, but he seemed to bring out the worst, did he not? It's really amazing how many there were that if given the opportunity, would have murdered him. And the shock of it all is that he was without sin. He was perfection. He was absolute goodness and holiness. He was, uh, he was compassionate. He was generous. He was gracious. And he was offering what everybody needs, right? Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And he offered it not as something that you have to work for, nothing that you can earn or achieve or merit, but simply as a gift to be received. But instead of eagerly uh, embracing him, those to whom he brought salvation wanted to kill him. It's really the most remarkable reality about his life. He was currently pursued to be killed. Now, it began with Herod the Great. Uh, he was the father of the Herodian dynasty. Uh, he was not a Jew, he was an Edomian. And he ruled in Israel from 37 BC to shortly after the birth of Christ. All right, so some 40 years or so. Uh, he, he was the one who rebuilt the temple. It's actually the third temple. It was called Herod's Temple. Now, he was hated because he was a Jew. And he was also a vicious and murderous man. He was so threatened by anyone who might take his throne that he slaughtered his own family members and anybody else around him who he thought might have a, a place to take his throne. When he heard that the wise men, uh, or heard from the wise men, that there was a, a baby born in Bethlehem, it was a child, and he was born king of the Jews... Herod wanted to find him, but when he couldn't, he just massacred every male child to and under in that whole area around Bethlehem. Now Matthew 2 describes that horrible mass slaughter. Herod the Great wanted Jesus dead because, or even though he hadn't done anything, he wanted him dead from the time he was born. Now, when he appeared in his own hometown, this is Jesus now, it's Nazareth. It's in Luke chapter 4. We looked at it months ago. He preached in the synagogue that he had been in every Sabbath of his entire life. Everybody in town knew him. Everybody in that synagogue knew him. It was where his family, his relatives, and his neighbors went to worship. Now, he preached one sermon there in Luke chapter 4. They were so furious and enraged that at the end of the sermon, they took him out to the brow of a hill, anticipating to push him off a cliff for the purpose of killing him. And they hated what he said. Now, he said they were too self-righteous to be saved. So his own friends and relatives wanted him dead. The temple authorities wanted him dead. Back in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus began his ministry by going into the temple at the Passover season. 
And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers were seated there as well. He made a scourge, a cord of ropes, and he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen as well. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. He said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, they wanted him dead because it was, um, he, he pointed out the corruption of their business. Now, it was mainly the Sadducees that operated the temple concessions, and uh, they had turned it into literally a den of thieves. But it wasn't just the temple authorities that wanted him dead. The whole leadership of Israel wanted him dead. You can include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the chief priests, the high priests, and the scribes. They all wanted him dead because he violated their corrupt, uh, perverted, apostate religion. He condemned their work system of merit and earning salvation. He did things on the Sabbath that they didn't like regularly. <laughs> and so he, he confronted them all. In John 5, Jesus healed the man there uh, at the temple. He's at the pool of Bethesda, and he couldn't walk. He'd never been able to walk. Jesus told him to pick up your bed and walk, and so he did so. But it was the Sabbath. <laughs> and, of course, the Jews were furious that he had carried his bed on the Sabbath because that was a violation of their laws. And in response, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. They wanted to... Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but verse 18 in John 2 says that even more they wanted to kill him because he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Because they thought this was blasphemy. But it wasn't just the leaders that wanted him dead. It wasn't just the temple authorities that wanted him dead. It wasn't just Herod that wanted him dead. The people wanted him dead as well. And they had their opportunity you move forward a little bit to Luke 23, Pilate brings out Jesus and he says, look, why don't you take Barabbas and let Jesus go free? And what do they do? No, they clamor for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Well, what do I do with this man, Jesus? You know their response. Crucify him. Crucify him. This mass, this mob, they screamed for the blood of Jesus. It's also true that in the end, Pilate wanted him dead. Because Pilate needed him dead. There was, there was a revolution on his hands here, and he knew it. The people wanted him dead. Now, he had no fault in the man. He could find nothing wrong with Jesus. He wanted to wash his hands of innocent blood. But finally, intimidated by the Jewish people who would report him to Rome, he sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. And of course, uh, he released him to the soldiers. And it ultimately is those Roman soldiers who are the ones who took his life. But in our text, we meet someone else who wanted him dead. This man was a man named Herod. We're back in our text now in the Gospel of Luke. Herod wanted him dead. It was when he was preaching about salvation that, that it's a struggle, that it demands urgency, that it demands a relationship, that it demands a perception of eternal judgment. It's when he was preaching that in the towns and the villages that some Pharisees came, and came up and told him about Herod's wishes. Herod wants to kill you. Now, why would they bring this up about Herod? What's the point? 
Well, by the way, this is Herod uh, Antipas. This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son. Herod the Great has died long ago, and this is his son who is ruling now. His name is Herod Antipas. And his son hated Jesus uh, as a man as much as Herod the Great hated Jesus as a baby. He saw Jesus as a threat, just as his father had. Now, everybody, as I said, seems to have wanted to kill Jesus. And Herod is among them. And the Pharisees come up and say to him, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now this indicates that Jesus is actually in Herod's territory. And they're saying, get out of here. This is where his jurisdiction is, and he wants to kill you, to annihilate, to destroy, to murder you. Now Herod was the man that the Jews hated. He was a puppet of Rome. He was a puppet ruler. He had murdered John the Baptist. Now the word comes to Jesus that this man wants him dead. So why did, why did Herod want to kill Jesus? What was it about Jesus that caused Herod to want his death? Well, he knew that the prophet John the Baptist came to declare the arrival of the Messiah. And he could certainly assume that if he had killed the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, that the one that John the Baptist pointed to, that he declared, he might have vengeance in his heart. Maybe Herod wanted Jesus dead before Jesus could get to him. Now, it's also reasonable to suggest that Herod feared that Jesus might lead a rebellion. Uh, that he himself might become a problem for Rome. He, like his father, must have feared that this could potentially be a rival to his throne. And so, for those reasons, he wants Jesus dead. Now, it's not too long after this that for the first time, Herod actually meets Jesus this is in Luke 23. Pilate doesn't want to make the decision uh, by himself to execute Jesus, and he wants somebody else to weigh in on it. So he sends Jesus to Herod. And now Herod happens to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. Isaiah said that the suffering servant would be silent, as a, a lamb before its shearers is silent. Yeah, Jesus said nothing. It's interesting that in, in all the interrogations of Jesus by Annas, Caiaphas, uh, Pilate, and Herod, that only one of them did he never say a word to, and that's Herod. Now that's a severe judgment on that man. Jesus doesn't say a word to him. In his case, the door really was shut. So with that in mind, we go back to our text. For a long time, Herod wanted him dead. Now, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and said, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. This is kind of strange. The Pharisees hated Herod as well. Remember, Herod is a non-Jew. He's a puppet king in their land. But now they have come because somehow they've heard that Herod wants him dead, and they come to tell Jesus that. And you've got to ask the question, why in the world are they warning Jesus? Well, I think this warning has much more to do with intimidation than it does warning. They wanted to silence him. It's another way of saying, if you don't stop this, you're going to get killed. They brought the threat to bear on Jesus to silence him, or perhaps to force him out of Perea. This was the region he was in that belonged to Herod. Uh, they wanted to force him out of Perea, back into Judea, where the Sanhedrin, I can't speak, Sanhedrin had authority over him. The Sanhedrin was already plotting his death. 
you better go away and depart from here or you're going to get killed and Herod is going to do it. So the way they choose to threaten him or intimidate him is with the biggest stick that exists in the area. And that biggest stick is Herod. They, want to hear, they don't want to hear any more from him, from Jesus. In verse 32, he says to them, go and tell that fox. Huh. That's kind of an unusual thing for Jesus to say. With absolutely no hesitation, absolutely no fear, no intimidation, unresponsive to the threat, Jesus shows contempt and disdain for Herod. And he says, go and tell that fox. Now, he could have called him a lot of things. And many of us would have called him a lot of things. But he called him a fox. Foxes were known for their destructiveness. Scripture talks about uh, the little foxes that spoil the vines. They were destructive. They were also cunning, wily, sneaky. They were fast. They were in. They were out. So he could be referring to, uh, to Jesus's, or to Herod's destructiveness. He could be referring to his cunning. But that really isn't the main idea of the fox. In ancient times, the fox was viewed as an insignificant, as sort of a third-rate nuisance. To call somebody a, somebody a fox would be demeaning, it would be contemptuous. If somebody were really powerful, really destructive, you'd call him a lion. Remember, Jesus was called lion from the tribe of Judah. To say he's a fox would be in the English vernacular to say that he's a varmint. He's just a nuisance. He's neither great nor powerful. He doesn't have the strength to kill. He's no lion. He has neither honor nor strength. He's nothing but a petty nuisance. You go and tell that nuisance. You go and tell that varmint. Now, what, is he what are they supposed to go tell that varmint? <laughs> Verse 32, go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, what does this mean? This is a colloquialism. This is something that they would have understood. Today and tomorrow is a way of talking about continuation. We're going to do this today, we're going to do it tomorrow, and we're going to continue doing. Um, but the third day, the colloquialism means, yeah, until I'm done. It doesn't mean day three. The third day was poetic language for completing something. Today and tomorrow is a way of talking about continuation. So he says, look, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. Now, there's a short time implied here. This isn't going to go on for a long, long time. It's today and tomorrow and the third day. And it's simply poetic language for something completed. Uh, it's, a, it's a Semitic idiom indicating the Lord is going to continue his ministry until that third day. That last day, until the goal is reached. So, what is the goal? Well, the goal is the work of redemption. And Jesus is going to do what he's going to do until that hour. Herod is not, Herod is not sovereign over that, nor is anyone else. Jesus said he came to do the Father's will. And that's exactly what he would do. And nobody's going to cause him to do any other than the Father's will. And then, then Jesus says... For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, why would he say that? This is likely a proverb that grew up among the Jews. It's almost like something that you would say with a smirk on your face. Because so many prophets had been killed in Jerusalem. 
It almost became a badge of authenticity for a prophet to be killed in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to catalog this for you. It would take way too long. But there were many prophets and righteous people that were killed in Jerusalem. And I don't mean by their enemies, you know, foes coming in. No, I'm talking about the people of Israel and their leadership killed many righteous people and prophets. I'll give you just one example. In 2 Corinthians, I see Corinthians, right letter, 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah the prophet, he stood above the people and he said to them, the Lord has said, why have you transgressed the commandment of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, therefore he has also forsaken you. Now they didn't want to hear it. And in verse 21, they conspired against him at the command of the king. They stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. This is at the temple. They killed him right in the place where they were supposedly worshiping the very God who gave Zechariah the message to speak to his people. So it was not unusual for a prophet to die in Jerusalem, even in the temple, at the hands of the people and the leaders. So Jerusalem has first claim on the blood of God's messengers. And that's why the proverb says it cannot be. It cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. It's not allowed. It's inadmissible. Jerusalem is the place you have to die. And for Jesus, it really was the place to die. Because that's where all the sacrifices had been made. And he was the final sacrifice. They were all made there in the temple. And the final sacrifice, Jesus, would die in Jerusalem as well. The perfect and complete sacrifice. But the question then is the one we began with, who killed Jesus? In the end, who did it? Well, everybody I've talked about so far, they they all kind of come together. The Jews in general have carried the blame and very often have been called Christ killers by hateful people. Isaiah 49, 7 speaks of the coming Messiah as him who man despises, him who the nation hates. That's some prophecy, isn't it? In John eleven forty seven, 47, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees convene the council concerning Jesus. And here's what Caiaphas says. It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. In other words, we're going to lose this whole nation if we don't kill this one person. It was all hatched out of that plot. And from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, high priests, chief priests, including the council of the Sanhedrin. The Jewish ruling council wanted Jesus dead. But the people are also guilty. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. We are not going to have this man reign over us. They stood there in Luke 23 in front of Pilate and screamed for his death. That's why Peter, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he says, men of Israel, you have taken Christ by lawless hands and crucified him and put him to death. Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, Peter said that to the population of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4.10, again, Peter, to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. There's no question about it. They cannot escape it. They killed him. But were they alone in this? No. 
Pontius Pilate, a, a Gentile Roman governor, he sentenced him to die in collusion with Herod um, Antipas. In the end, it was the Roman soldiers that actually scourged Jesus and caused that massive uh, loss of blood. They pounded the nails in his hands and his feet and then uh, stuck the spear in his side to make sure that he was dead. It really was a vast conspiracy that everybody could agree on. I don't know how people somehow get the idea that Jesus was popular. He wasn't then, even when he was there, in all the glory of his person. He was so divisive. It was a vast conspiracy. It involved the Jews. It involved the Romans. It involved the Gentiles, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Diverse groups who had great barriers between them. None of them got along with each other at all. They had no common ground. Except they all wanted Jesus dead. That's why Acts 4.27 says... For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant, Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, didst anoint, he lists four people, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They did it. They all did it. Now I want you to listen to the last part of that verse. To do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Wow. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The question again is, who killed Jesus? Back up to Acts 2. This is verse 23. Uh, this is part of the original sermon that, that Peter preached. He says, this man, talking about Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The secondary, the secondary cause is sinful people. They all got together. They were all in on it. That's the secondary cause. But the primary cause was God. The ultimate answer to who killed Jesus is God. God killed Jesus. Now, in a way, you contributed as well. Herod did it. Pilate did it, the Gentiles did it, the people of Israel did it, but they did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. So Jesus really goes to Jerusalem to die as a sacrifice to God who has chosen him as an offering for sin. The great irony of this is found in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 8. This is an epistle of Paul. Here's what Paul writes. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. So Paul's talking about wisdom, but this wisdom was not understood. And he's talking about Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod. They didn't understand them, this, their wisdom, that wisdom. For if they had understood it, Paul says, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now this is providential irony of the highest order. If they had understood the wisdom, they would have accepted him. If they would have accepted him, they would not have killed him. If they hadn't killed him, there would be no salvation. Do you get that? But in killing Jesus, they fulfilled the will of God. In the end, it was God who put Jesus on the cross for us. Some 
650 years before Christ came, Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And he did. Let's pray. Father, what a God that in your eternal plan, Father, you knew that Jesus would come to this earth. You knew what the incarnation was all about. He actually came here to die as an offering for sin. And yes, sinful man was fully complicit with it, doing, Lord, your purpose uh, and your will. And we are grateful for that, that on this side of the cross, we can look back and simply say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for sin. Thank you, God, for your eternal plans concerning our salvation. We give you praise and we give you glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, this morning, maybe you're sitting out there and you don't, you know, you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm hoping that you have got a taste of what it's about, that he died for sin. You know, one of the major uh, just kind of, I don't know, debates that's going on, particularly in moderate, let's call it theology and beyond, is that uh, Jesus did, there was no atoning value in the death of Jesus. It was merely an example. He defeated evil forces. Well, I happen to believe in the penal substitution of Jesus. He took our penalty. He took our sin on himself. He did that for you. All you have to do to receive it is trust him. It's in our nature to trust ourselves, to do everything that we can to get out of any predicament that we're in. That's hardwired into us. But it's not God's design. God's design is for you to forsake yourself, and that includes your sin, because that's really all the thing, that's the only thing that you're bringing of notice before God is your sin. You give him your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and he gives you his, Christ's, righteousness. It's the great exchange. I'm asking you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come, give him your sin. He will give you his righteousness. You will be right with God. You know, that's what atonement means, at one mint. We're at one with God. I hope you can claim that this morning. Now, if you're a believer and you're walking with the Lord, I hope you understand from our little study this morning that, yeah, God was behind this whole thing. And he had human sin as his final target, goal, what he wanted to deal with. And he did it through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. This wasn't plan B. This was plan A. Those, verse, those last two verses I read tell us this was plan A from the beginning. That God would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. I just hope it gives you a a better appreciation of what Jesus did on that cross. Ultimately, he had us in mind, but ultimately, he was being obedient to the Father. Amen. Hey, if you'd like to join our church, I just invite you to come down and uh, talk to me. We're going to have a song of invitation. Just give you a chance to respond. Uh, We'll see about getting you going with us here at First Baptist. I want to thank you so much for being with us this morning. But if God is speaking to your heart, you've heard me say it many times before, don't run from it, run run to it. Don't run from it, run to it. 
You come and share with me what God is doing in your heart this morning. You guys stand. Miss Sarah, you lead. That way, I need I need a couple deacons up here. Uh, we need one at this door because some people will be going out this way, and a couple at the front. This is just to supplement our uh, benevolence. Uh, we do benevolence in the church for people of the church and for people in our community, and it's it doesn't have a big budget. We used to do this regularly on the fifth Sunday, and to be honest with you, it just fell off the radar. And I was like, no, we need to get it back on. So. We're just going to take a take collection. Uh, if you've got a five, drop it in there. If you've got a 20, I have I have heard that the largest bill still in print is a $500 bill. So if you've got one of them, throw that in there too. We'll get a kick out of that. I've never seen a $500 bill except a picture of one. Uh, but no, we just want to do this to be able to help folks in our church and in our community when they come to us and say, hey, we need help. Uh, it's hard for us to go outside of budgeted funds to do that. So this will just go to our uh, designated fund for benevolence and give you an opportunity to help. Matter of fact, you know what I, I, I read today about one of the very first Baptist surface, uh, services, 1609 in Amsterdam, Holland. This is John Smythe's church. And it's a letter from two people in the church to I don't know who. But they say, this was the order of our service. I've got to read it word for word. I'm not going to do that to you right now. But at the end, it says, and at the end, we took a collection for the poor. At the end of the service, we took a collection for the poor. I was like, well, that's what we're doing right now. There's plenty of people out there that need help. And we hear from them. We'd like to be able to help them. So we're going to ask you to help us help them. Okay. Uh, Larry, I'm coming reason I'm using this is because I want people to hear your prayer. Would you close this in a word of prayer? Hi, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to come and worship, and we thank you for the story that we listened to this morning, that you just give us encouragement that, you know, we can all be involved in the killing of Jesus. We can all be involved in that if we don't keep our eyes on you. And we just pray now that as we go through this part of our country time, in the election, we just now pray that everyone will vote and vote your heart. Just pray and seek out what the Lord's will is in your life. We just ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.